This podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge the ongoing connection to land, waters and culture. Colonisation and genocide are ongoing processes that are still occurring to this day. Sovereignty was never ceded and this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Hey everybody and welcome back to Ozpol Snackpod, the podcast where normally two of Australia's foremost political nobodies bring you bite-sized chunks of Australian politics and news with a side of crispy memes. Uh, but not this week. Uh, my name is Noon and not with me this week is my co-host Zach. He's away because he's had some bad news in the family and so he's going to be away for at least the next couple of weeks. So we're basically going to have a little hiatus in the meantime. Um, We may keep on putting out some content, and this week I'm going to be playing an old bonus episode for you, uh, which uh, I'll tell you about in a sec, but um, uh, I also just wanted to mention, uh, you know, last week we interviewed Danny, who was a speaker at International Women's Day, and um, Zach went and marshaled at International Women's Day, and we got some feedback from a listener basically saying that International Women's Day in Melbourne had a whole lot of... um, really big problems uh, about how they treat sex workers and trans people Um, and uh, that was something that Zach really wanted to address and it was a potluck that we really wanted to play on the show and talk about um, and also obviously uh, many of you would have know about um, issues about not having Indigenous speakers at International Women's Day and uh, yeah so that was something we really wanted to address this week but um, Zach is away so we're not going to be able to and um, we We'll get back to that whenever Zach is back. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that we're going to have to postpone that discussion. Um, yeah, so in the meantime, I am going to play this old bonus episode. It's a uh, about badass feminists in so-called Australia. And so um, normally when we play a, an old bonus episode, uh, Zach will cut out the intro so it just kind of dives into the meaty stuff. But um, there was some... Uh, funny memes going on at the time that we recorded it, so I thought I might just leave the intro in there um, for those of you who remember that the 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 non-friendly Geordies episode saga. You can you can enjoy that. Yeah, um, so that's about it. Um, as I mentioned, uh, between Zach being away and my essentially complete lack of ability to edit audio uh we, we won't be doing shows probably next week and maybe not the week after we'll see um and yeah bonus apps also on hold i might put out a few little bits of content um like i have done before when we've had breaks but um yeah we, we'll keep you updated um and yeah we'll be back with you with regular snack pod content as soon as we can Um, Until then, on Zach's behalf, keep on snacking in the free world, and on my behalf, please always remember to crunch crunch. Hey everybody, and welcome back to Bonus Snack Pod, the podcast that we don't have to do all of our, like, opening tags for, because you guys know who we are, and we know who you are, you're our... How did you get here? Our snack pack. The snack pack. Faithful fans, including some people who joined since our most recent episode where we um, completely failed to discuss Friendly Geordie. So people who listened to that and then decided that you still want to support the show financially, thank you and we're sorry. And wow, yeah. And al- sorry why? about that. But also, thanks. But also, cool. Yeah, if we've, we've actually got, um, you know, we've had a few new patrons join us in the last couple of weeks so if this is your first bonus pod welcome what we normally do is one of our rewards on patreon is that uh, people who sign up for five bucks or more a month can suggest stuff for us to talk about in the bonus episodes um so this week we got a request from l hacky noon yeah that's right and they said historical badass women in parliament uh which is a great idea that we loved um and uh, zach was like yeah cool um any Who in particular? in particular you're thinking of. And they said Vera Goldstein, uh, who it, it turns out is called Vita Goldstein and wasn't in Parliament. Uh, but from there, we kind of... Well, I just picked someone else. I, I didn't read it properly. I didn't read that it was Parliament. So I'm, I'm talking about uh, Australian feminist activist who had nothing to do with Parliament. 
Um, yeah, so but- we still got a couple of of like historical Australian feminists, um, yeah, or you know, Australia in quotes, so called Australia. Um, so you know, it's we, we we took the spirit of the request. I mean, I am literally talking about Vita Goldstein. It just didn't turned out that she didn't actually get into Parliament, but um, we'll get into that. Uh, should we get going? Uh, yeah, before we go, I just want to say I've never done a biography before, so I don't really know how to do this, uh, but you're going to go first, so I'm going to learn from uh, how you do, so we'll see. Yeah, it's actually, it's not a bad disclaimer to make that, like, I think a majority of the people who listen to this podcast probably did more, like, uni than I did. It's been a long time since I've had to review a primary source, for example, Mm. but I I, I did my best, so... (laughs) Let's uh, <laughs> let's get See going. See how we go. Cool. Yeah, um, and I guess before I get into it, um, so we're, we're talking about Vita Goldstein, who was a suffragist. Um, in and I just, I guess, just in case anybody um, isn't familiar with the term, that is somebody who fights for the right to vote. In this case, specifically for the right of women to vote, and even more specifically, the right for white women to vote. So yeah, yeah, um, that's. You know, the suffrage movement was um, a movement for uh, a movement aiming to get women the vote, but specifically it was white women because uh, this country is hella fucking racist and basically always has been. And even um, when we're being progressive, we're racist. Yeah, exactly. So it, there's always going. It's always going to be complicated to talk about um, activists from you know colonial activists from like 150 years ago or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I just wanted to give you yeah, that sort of disclaimer up top that when, when I talk about later that, uh, you know, women got the vote in 1902, I'm talking about white women. And, you know, it's important that we acknowledge that uh, there was a full indigenous suffrage was only achieved in 1965 when uh, Queensland removed their disqualification for Aboriginal people to vote. Um, but, uh, you know, with that out of the way... Um, Let's let's get into it. So Vita Goldstein was a feminist socialist, and she is basically most famous for standing for election at the federal election in 1903, which is the very first election at which women were allowed to stand. So she was one of uh, four women who stood uh, at that election. Um, so she was born in 1869. She had a relatively well-to-do upbringing, as far as I can tell. She was educated by governess which I'm assuming is, you know, not something that was available to everybody. And she went to uh, the Presbyterian Ladies College in uh, Melbourne for the last couple of years of her schooling. So, yeah, she was born and raised in Victoria. Um, So her mum was uh, an activist as well. She worked for social reform. She was a feminist, a suffragist, and a teetotaler. And uh, Vida's introduction to politics seems to have been basically going out with her mum to do various uh, activist things. And uh, the first sort of major event in Vida's political development seems to have been going out with her mum to collect signatures for a women's suffrage petition in 1891. That was that um, petition collected 30,000 signatures. Wow. Um, yeah, so it was huge, and it, it's become known as the Monster Petition, which was... Um, <laughs> It was funny to come across that, like, come across that in, like, her Wikipedia page, for example. It's like, yeah, she collected signatures for the monster petition, and then with no further context. I was like, uh-huh. Um, yeah, apparently it was, like, 260 meters long. Like, they just glued pages onto calico and then sewed them on one after the other. Holy shit. Um, yeah, the original is still in the public records office in um, is- of Victoria Archives. This is a bit of a tangent, but um, I've been listening to this Bible podcast, and one that there's like they're ex Christians, and one of them is talking about how they used to collect like uh, I'm gonna stay a virgin until I'm married cards, and there was a plan <laughs> to get enough to stack it up to the roof of the Georgia State House, um, and it was called the Through the Roof campaign, and there were so many that they could stack it like two and a third times. It's wild, <laughs> fucking Christian nerds. Wow. No offense to any Good. Christian nerds listening to the show. Got to respect the apparent commitment. Yeah. <laughs> or at least the hustle. Yeah. I mean, you can do everything but. <laughs> everything but. Um, <laughs> Please continue. We, <laughs> I will. Um, 
So, okay. Um, so it seems that, uh, that Goldstein started to develop a pretty class-focused interpretation of gender inequality. She later wrote of the experience of going around collecting signatures for this um, monster suffrage petition. Quote, the feeling of equality between men and women was most vital in the industrial suburbs. Never once were the canvases met by a working man who said, I won't allow my wife to sign the petition. On the contrary, if the husband opened the door, he would call his wife saying, here's a lady who wants to know if you want the vote. And invariably, she did. But in the more favoured suburbs, a husband would quite frequently refuse to allow his wife to sign, or a wife would meekly and would say meekly and wistfully, I'd like to sign, but my husband won't let me. So she definitely is sees rich men specifically as the enemy of progress when it comes to um, mm. you know, women's suffrage. Mm. So in her 20s, she starts to get involved with various socially progressive groups. One was the National Anti-Sweating League. Do you want to take a guess what they were uh, about? No, because I, when I was looking through the, the notes document, I saw it and I was like, anti-swearing league? Jeez, what a nerd. And then I saw the next bullet point in your notes. Uh, so <laughs> why don't you go ahead and tell audience? That, that was the second re- Google result, the anti-swearing league. Different thing. <laughs> but the National Anti-Sweating League advocated for better conditions for sweatshop workers, basically. So, you know, sweating workers, putting them in, like, terrible conditions. Yep. Um, was the the terminology at the time? So the Na- National Anti Sweating League uh, call like one of the things they did was call for a minimum wage, and one and they uh, their advocacy helped get up the Victorian Factory and Shops Act 1896, which was the very first minimum wage law in Australia. Cool. So you know, Vida is not just focusing on feminist issues; she's got a broader sort of economic mm, and mm. and social political perspective as well. Um, Do you know so- was she a Marxist socialist? I don't think so. Okay, but yeah, I yeah. The, the, it hasn't. I feel like that would have come up in uh, did you my say reading. She was a Christian socialist. I mean, there are some no, Christian so- Marxist socialists, but I mean, everybody was Christian. Like all the uh, white people true, were, true. were, yeah, were yeah. Christian. Um, and she definitely gets in. Like she's religious and spiritual for sure. And sure. I'll get into it later. But that becomes kind of her main thing, even. Right. Um, I feel like if she was a Marxist, it would would have come up in my yeah, research, and yep. I didn't see it mentioned anywhere. But she's categorized as a socialist for sure sure um but kind of a non-revolutionary socialist and i think i've actually got a quote about that later so it'll become clear cool anyway that's Um, fine i'm just interested yeah so you know she's in her 20s she's doing all this uh getting involved in all these uh various causes and she becomes very close with a woman named annette bear crawford which is a pretty dope name it is who (laughs) was uh basically the main leader of the suffrage women's suffrage movement in victoria um, and uh, she founded the Victorian Women's Suffrage League and then the United Council for Women for Women's Suffrage, which was the organization that organized the monster petition. So obviously this woman was, you know, she was organizing this stuff, the, the, these events that were Vita's first contact with politics and suffrage in general. Yeah, cool. So clearly an important figure in her life. Uh, Bear Crawford was renowned as a great public speaker, and she trained Vida in public speaking. Vida would follow her around, follow her around to meetings and watch her talk and stuff. And and uh, Annette Bear Crawford would sort of tell her how to answer questions on the spot and deal with hecklers, which I am sure you That's can imagine cool. for a suffragist was yeah. pretty important at the yeah. time. So throughout the 1890s, Vida is campaigning for a whole bunch of different progressive legislation. She's attending parliament and learning about government process, doing a bunch of reading, you know, developing her political perspective as a young person. Famously, she was unmarried at the time and and seems to have been like a popular face for feminism because she was, by mainstream standards, like well-dressed and good-looking. Um, well groomed was a phrase that came up often when in when reading about her. So take from that what you will. Nothing's really changed in that. Whenever people report about anything that involves women, they also report on how women look. Exactly, and I've got a quote here from the Daily News, nineteen oh six. Quote: Small but not stout. She is not untidy. She is not loud voiced. She is not pedantic, and she is not terrible. It's kind of weird. Unlike all those other. Horrible, stout feminists. <laughs> Untidy, <laughs> pedantic, loud-voiced 
Yeah. Weird. <laughs> yeah. That's a, it's a weird... Pretty fucking weird gross. series of choices. Yeah. Pretty fucking gross stuff. Um, daily news. You're she canceled. is not terrible. She's okay. not terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not that yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, so, in 1899, Annette Bear Crawford died of pneumonia. Um, she was pretty young, only 49. Well, I guess, you know, look, it's all relative. In 1900, but, anyway. but yep. Yeah. Uh, but basically, that put Vida in the position of becoming like the de facto leader of the radical women's movement in Victoria. And that year, she made her first speech in support of, in brackets here, I've got white women's suffrage um and all of the like biographies that i found of her online all say that she was really really good at dealing with hecklers but i couldn't find any examples of that which was Hmm. a bit disappointing yeah but you know i'm sure you you can can imagine imagine dudes show up and say a bunch of sexist shit and you know she is good on her feet and funny so 1902 comes around the australian commonwealth franchise act enables white women to vote in federal elections and to stand for federal parliament. Uh, doesn't give them the right to vote and stand for parliament in states, which is still an issue um, decided by the individual states. Sure. But so, you know, Australia becomes the first modern nation to give white women the vote and the right to stand for parliament. New Zealand had given white women the right to vote um, about 10 years earlier, but not the right to stand for election. So Australia was the first modern nation to do, to do mm-hmm. both. Um, and I guess I just wanted to, I don't know, divert for a second here and, you know, like a lot of this, a lot of the sources that you read about this stuff are like, yeah, Australia is the first country to give women the vote and the right to stand for election and stuff. But it kind of, it just, I don't know, that, that framing of it really makes me wonder about like pre-electoral societies or non-electoral societies that existed at the time. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, it makes you think about, uh, indigenous Australian societies. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, this Australian Commonwealth Franchise Act, which gave white women the vote, also removed the rights of Indigenous people to mm. vote in federal elections. So the exact same piece of legislation that forwards the rights of white women takes them away from black people. And, I mean, I, I it's just... I mean, you, you couldn't really concoct, like, a better analogy for white feminism, really, yeah, f- than for that. Sure. You know, and like these things are obviously complicated, and um, there's a the you know history is fucking messy, and mm, mm. I think it's important to kind of talk about those gains, but also to acknowledge the fact that they you know came at the expense of the rights mm. of indigenous people here. So um, that's just something I wanted to mention before moving on. Um, so after the after white women get the vote in Australia, Goldstein starts to develop a little bit of an, an international profile because, you know, Australia is the world leader in white women's sure. suffrage, basically. So she goes to the US. She's the first Australian to meet uh, President Roosevelt in the new White House, I think. Um, and then in 1903, she does what, you know, she is kind of renowned for, which is mm. being one of the first four women in Australia to stand for federal election. She ran for the Senate as an independent. She didn't get in, but performed pretty respectably for the first, you know, one of the first women to sure. ever run for government. Did any of the women get elected then? Uh, no. Right. Hmm. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty confident, no. Um, so her election platform included uh, equal rights and pay for white women. Uh, and was also pretty socialist. She she called for legislation that would have meant uh, redistributing wealth throughout Australia. She was pretty anti-capitalist. She produ- supported production for use, not for profit. Uh, she was in favour of public control of utilities. So relatively radical by the standards of Australian politics for the time, for sure. Um, she does seem to have been pro-white Australia policy that I found kind of conflicting sources on that, but she Mm -hmm. certainly didn't do any campaigning for like racial justice or equality or anything like that, as far as I could tell. Um, so at the very least tacitly endorsed the white Australian Mm. policy, but I'm pretty sure there's like letters or diary entries where she's like, yeah, it's a sensible thing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, she was definitely racist. Um, 
I've got a quote here um, from historian Barbara Kane, who is now the head of School of Philosophy and History at University of Sydney. Um, and so if you kind of try to Google her for what she's about, you get a bunch of results of like, you know, all the things that happen when someone is the head of a department at a university with mm. people being like, hey, why are you underfunding this department? Or why are you firing this progressive lecturer or whatever? Um but I'm going to refer to her um, writing about Goldstein a little bit here because she was one of the few kind of people trying to th- that I found who were kind of trying to interpret her legacy beyond like, yeah, suffrage, good. Um, so here's a quote from uh, an article by her. She said, she shared with other Australian feminists like her friend Alice Henry and with British socialist feminists a belief that the women, woman movement and the labor movement must advance in combination. Her enthusiasm for women's suffrage coexisted with her advocacy of a non-revolutionary form of socialism based on the collective ownership of the means of living. So, yeah, her feminism is pretty tied up in her, like, economic and social mm. politics, um, which I think is interesting. Um, but so, you know, she loses this election in 1903 and basically figures, okay, if women are going to have any kind of major impact in politics we need to get more organized Mm. so she starts the women's political association which is all about getting women involved in electoral politics and she also starts a paper she owned and edited called woman's sphere um she does yeah it's a good good name yeah uh she does some more political campaigning uh around like raising the age of marriage and consent equal Mm -hmm. property rights for women uh cool. agitating agitating around the uh the rights of women working in sweatshops. No sweating, um, Zach, stop it. Exactly. I'm anti sweating. And no swearing either. No. Uh and one of the other fucking things that she's most remembered for um is an article that she wrote in nineteen oh seven called Socialism of Today an Australian View, which included um like a table which was like a cost of living calculation of the lowest wage that quote a man and his family could subsist uh-huh. on. that's very um, funny from like a leading feminist activist, yeah and you but see also this, it, fair it, that's enough, a pattern yeah sure and like you know of course like you know i feel like there's potentially more of um, a bit more of an emphasis on the language that we use around these issues oh, these 100%. days yeah yeah as um, will also come up in the my person that I'm going to talk about. Yes, totally. Um, and it's the, uh, I'm going to get to them later, but the, the British suffragettes, their motto was um, deeds, not words, which I thought was badass, but I think also maybe um, summarizes <laughs> their attitude towards language a little bit as sure, well, potentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but so, you know, she wrote these, she basically published this article which had these calculations for like, this is the absolute smallest amount of money that a human being who has dependents could survive on. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and this article and the calculations within it are widely believed to have heavily influenced the harvester judgment, which right. was a, a court case that required the court to decide what a fair and reasonable wage was as part mm-hmm. of the proceedings. And that laid the foundation for Australian minimum wage laws like nationwide. So, yeah, I mean, minimum wage, like I think that Vita had, uh, Vita Goldstein had a large influence, you know, through her uh, being involved with the anti-sweating society, but also with this, you know, article that she wrote like the foundation of the of minimum wage laws in Australia she was quite involved with. And I think that's one of the coolest things that um, you can sort of uh, attribute to her. Because, um, yeah, I mean, we've got very good minimum wage laws here compared to a lot of other places. Sure. Um, uh, so she did a lot of campaigning for state suffrage for mm-hmm. white women. That was won in 1908. And, you know, so that's that's the end of the suffrage battle really here in Australia for, for white women. Um by the way, I looked it up. Uh, the first person in uh, the first woman in federal parliament was in '43, and the first Fuck. in state parliament was 1921, which was Edith Co- uh, Cohen, who's on the $50 bill. Totally, that was the uh, that she was the runner-up for who I was going to talk, talk about. Yep. Um, but we went with Vita instead. Yeah, and it's like, it's funny, like the difference, but not, didn't really get into it. But the difference between like states. Um, yeah, su- suffrage for white women in, in various states. Uh, like South Australia, it enabled women to both vote and stand for state election like quite a long time before um, it happened federally. And I think yeah. that they actually made one of the preconditions for federating that 
nobody who had the right to vote would lose it. That's right. According I, to the I Constitution, have distant members of like year ten history. Yeah, and I, I haven't done I haven't done a huge amount of digging on this, and I know that we have like um a people who are much more informed than I am about this stuff listening to this show. So um, flame me if I'm wrong about this. But I think that, that to be was fair, one that's probably true levers. about any single given thing that we talk about. Yes. And I often encourage people to write in and correct me. <laughs> correct us. That's um, true. Yeah. Um, but so, okay. State suffrage is won for white women in 1908. 1911, she goes and visits England and spends time with the Women's Social and Political Union, the WSPU, a.k.a. the suffragettes. So the suffragette struggle in England was pretty different to... Australia's, it seems. Right. Basically, it seems to have been way more intense, more violent, and more dangerous to have been a suffragette in Britain. Right. Uh, there's, you know, lots and lots of accounts of sexual violence being used against suffragettes, uh, you know, and that that violence being ignored or committed by police. Mm. Um, they were famously uh, force-fed when they went on hunger strike in prison. These are not the types of stories that have come up when I've been reading about Australian suffragist mm. movements. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm sure that sexual violence and, and, and I know that there were d- definitely threats of sexual violence mm. for sure. Mm. Um, you know, at meetings that uh, Vita Goldstein spoke at and that kind of thing, but it's, a seems to have been, you know, a, a pretty different, uh, a pretty different tone in England than in Australia. And so in response, the WSPU's methods were much more militant. They did a whole bunch sure. of civil disobedience. Uh, they were big into property damage and arson. They would deliberately break the law in front of cops in order to force arrests. Um, and Goldstein seems to have been pretty much, by and large, like in favor of their militant methods. And there's letters from her writing to uh, suffragettes being like, you know, you have to be super militant now before you get the vote and stuff. Uh, and even after you get the vote, you better keep up that hardcore militant shit because it's still going to be super necessary. Mm. Um, so, you know, she didn't, what didn't wasn't a violent revolutionary in her own right, but definitely didn't seem to be uh, anti Opposed to it when it was necessary pro-action. for yeah. her goals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but interestingly, um, and this is kind of really coming, uh, this is from... Uh, coming from Barbara Kane, the historian that I mentioned earlier, but she argues that seeing the struggle of British suffragettes kind of undermined Goldstein's faith in the possibility of social reform to a certain extent because the Australian journey to white women's suffrage had been relatively smooth in comparison. Um, And, you know, as I've discussed, Goldstein had this view of, like, gendered uh gender inequality or sexual inequality as she probably would have termed it as coming really from like rich men basically Mm. and considered working class men her allies and i think that going to england and seeing how vicious the like misogynist opposition to suffrage women's suffrage in england was kind of seems to have, like, shocked her and thrown a spanner into the works of her, like, worldview, basically. Yeah, right. Um, Which we'll come back to later. But so uh, she ran for the House of Reps twice, 1913 and 14. She didn't succeed either time. And then 1914, of course, World War I breaks out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goldstein was also a staunch pacifist, which is not something I've really brought up so far, but that was her other big thing besides socialism and suffrage. So in 1915, she founds the Women's Peace Army, which is an anti-war organization. She also helps to organize a Women's Unemployment Bureau, so she's cool. still definitely on her you know, working-class shit, which I respect. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1917... Shout-outs to f- Friendly Geordies. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Noon. Um, 1917, she takes her fourth and final tilt at Parliament, again trying for the Senate. And this is the only time that she ran that she didn't get back her deposit, um, meaning that, you know, that's right. a threshold you have to get over in order to get back the money that you pay in order to run in the first place. That's very impressive to get your first three over that threshold. Yeah, that's amazing. no, so, I mean, her electoral showings were solid, you know. She was yeah, getting, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, solid chunks of the vote. But this is the first, you know, this is her worst performance. And 
historians that I've read seems to largely put this down to her pacifism, basically, because mm-hmm. um, she was just so yeah, virulently anti-war. So, um, man, what a shit country! Yeah, in many ways, in many ways. Um, in uh, in 1919, she seems to basically have made the decision to retreat from public life. So, she continues her anti-war lobbying um, and, and and kind of starts to develop this new vision for an international social order based on religion and brotherhood. And that's her word, not mm-hmm. mine. So, this, you know, we see again these sort of, yeah, like I guess the these entrenched tropes of language coming up basically um, unexamined um, in feminist writing and thinking of the time, which, yeah, it's interesting to talk about. But um, she seems to have basically started to become kind of quite disillusioned, I think, with uh, the causes that she'd been involved with around, you know, as her life went on. So she she founded a Christian science church. Christian science is pretty weird. I didn't do a whole lot of digging into it. Mm. Um, but it seems to, it seems that a fundamental element of Christian science is the belief that the material world is an illusion and that spiritual life is the only thing that really exists, which I found to be a weird half turn, like a, a weird about face from somebody whose entire life had been dedicated to fighting for better material conditions for people. Um, she became a faith-based healer, which is a Christian uh-huh. science thing. Yep. Uh, so they basically believe that, you know, the, given the material world is an illusion, bodies aren't real, and right, so if is... you pray properly, then you get rid of the disease. Yeah, because disease is uh, an expression of an incorrect mind, basically, a mind that has gone mm-hmm. wrong. Pretty fucked up and problematic ideas. Yeah. They, they also hold that uh, prayer works best without medicine. They don't, they're not necessarily fully anti-medicine. They're usually like, oh, look, if you're going to take medicine, then we'll pray as well. But ideally, we'd just pray and not do the medicine thing. So she... Huh. This, she, you know, she becomes like a big time faith healer in the Christian Science Church. Yeah, wow. Um, that is yeah, kind of a is, sharp right turn. It is, and look, I'm sure it's more gradual than how I'm describing sure, it. But basically, sure. yeah, that makes sense. Like, according to all the biographies that I read, like you know, in around 1919, she stops being nearly as politically active in public and starts to focus much more on spiritualism, and she kind of develops this new. Like, yeah, attitude, which has been, I've seen it described as internationalism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very much like, yeah, brotherhood of man type shit. So that's um, interesting because it's clearly not a socialist internationalism, proletarian uh, internationalism, which is like no, a big deal. This no, is much a more Christ about, internationalism. Yeah, no, not nearly as materialist as that, mm. for sure. Um, so she wrote during World War II um, that she had hoped for, quote, the spirit of the suffragettes to be reborn in women against the inventions of science being centered on weapons of destruction. So still big pacifist. Interestingly, this, the, the suffragettes were actually like quite big supporters of the British war effort in World War I. That is so weird. Had they won the vote by then? Uh, no. I think, they got right. the, I think the British suffragettes got the vote in 1920. Sure. Um. That kind of makes sense to me as a shitty tactical decision to be like, look, if we show everyone that we'll still vote for the terrible imperialist war, then they'll see there's nothing to lose by... <laughs> Very possibly. Uh, I, I mean, know. they I'm were notoriously... Like, they refused to take a political side as an organization. Like, they were... Sure. They, didn't, they had no party affiliations and they basically mm-hmm. committed themselves to... The single like, issue... Well, just be just ver- just opposing whoever was in government, basically. Right, right. Um, and yes, I mean, whether or not it was just a tactical play, or whether they were just like also white supremacists who believed that, like, and, and British supremacists, like that would yeah, surprise British me at supremacists all. more so, I think, in World War One. But yes, yes, yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I mean, look, you can have a little bit of white supremacist infighting sprinkled Europe in as there. a treat. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> It's not a treat. It's very bad. Um, no, no, I was just chuckling at that meme that I haven't heard of since we did an episode on it a couple of months <laughs> yeah, ago. Wow, yeah, it's been a minute. Um, 
it's still a popular meme in my household. Um, mm. Zach can have a little entire box of shapes in 10 minutes as a treat. <laughs> um, she, uh, so, you know, I mean, she's yeah, still very pacifist at the time. She had hoped to see like an international protest by women against the atomic bomb, for example, and was mm-hmm. basically like disappointed when these things didn't come to pass. Um, and I'm going to uh, sort of close out here with a quote from Vita, which is from the Barbara Kane piece, but it's not cited in the in the Kane piece. And a lot of the quotes from the end of the article are pulled from her, from uh, Vita's like letters and diary entries and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. So I'm assuming that this is from a letter written very late in Vita's life, but I couldn't actually find the source of it. Sure. But Kane's sourcing is otherwise pretty good, and she's like you know a, a proper mainstream. You know, academic working on this, you, so yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I'm inclined to um, believe her when she says that Vita wrote this quote: "The basic principle of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man are the only solution of human problems." Um, so I think that kind of encapsulates the way that her thinking, her philosophical thinking had shifted by mm. you know, the end of her life. Now, she'd always been like a religious person, clearly. But, um, you know, returning to these quite sort of paternalistic ideas, um, yeah, I, th- I think it's kind of interesting. So she started out as, uh, you know, ve- like very much grounded in like workers' rights um, mm. and seeing even, uh, you know, sexual equality as... Uh, as a as like a working class issue, basically, mm, mm. Um, and then seems to have drifted to this kind of more abstract uh, spiritual interpretation. I guess partially as a result of feeling like um, you know change wasn't happening fast enough. But I mean, that's just well, a guess. It's sort of hard to say. I also think. Obviously something that you kind of touched on about her being really sort of disappointed and disillusioned first with like working class men in Britain and then with the suffragettes in World War One, that like she might have felt kind of burnt by those beliefs or like they'd been well, disapproved like, or something. I don't think that she was like burnt by the suffragettes being pro-World War One. it seems that later in her life she sort of recast them in her head to be pacifists. Right. Um, huh, interesting. And so, yeah, like, you know, pacifism was definitely tied up in, uh, in suffragism for a lot of people in the movement, but they definitely weren't mm. one and the same. And there wasn't a, you know, it was, the, the Venn diagram was not a circle there. Mm. Um, you know, and, but, so you, uh, I think maybe you're right that there there was a gap there um, between sort of her beliefs and the rest of the suffrage movement, or you know, a large part mm. of the suffrage movement. But you know, maybe she didn't really see it. I, I don't know. And you know, it, look, this is a relatively superficial discussion of, of yeah, her life. Sure. Obviously, it's all we're ever going to be able to do. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, so it, it's hard and probably irresponsible for me to try to draw any serious conclusions. But no, I think we should speculate wildly without evidence. Okay. I think that's what we're here for. You got it. Well, you're welcome. Thanks. Uh, so, yeah, she dies in, in 1949, basically, uh, very quietly and with, and with very little public notice paid. But she's since become very written about and is now regarded as like a major Australian feminist. And um, there's been TV shows featuring her as a main character and um, lots and lots of like full length books written about her life and mm. stuff. So if you're keen to know more about her and she did live an interesting life um, and there's you know, a lot more there, at them. Mm. Yeah. There's, there's heaps and heaps to dive into if you're keen. So anyway, I hope that that was cool. a relatively uh, adequate description <laughs> of Vita's life and politics. I hope that, um, you got something out of that, but uh, now it's time to move on. Cool. So, yeah, I want to talk about a woman called Gladys Dorothy O'Shane, who was born in 1919 and died in 1965, and she was a grassroots Aboriginal activist, unionist, and communist. And Badass? Yeah. And as far as I can tell, she's part of the Kunjanji clan of the Yuku Yalanji people, whose land is in the rainforest in far north Queensland. And... She went to school until she was 12 and then was sent to work as a domestic labourer for a white family, you know, doing, like, cooking and cleaning and shit, which was pretty normal for 
young Aboriginal girls for some fucking reason. Uh, and it's racism. That is the reason. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and she married a white man who was an ex-boxer, and he got the nickname Tiger for beating the shit out of racists, uh, which he did a lot after he married an Aboriginal woman. So, yeah, he would just, like, clock people when they started shit for them being married, which is cool. Is there something specific about tigers? Like, a tiger is notoriously like, anti-racist, or it was just, like, aggressive he was liable to punch you? the shit out of people, yeah. I guess people, like, because the everybody was racist, they were probably like, he's just aggressive. But now we've added in, no, 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 he was just punching racists. It just happened to be literally a lot of people. anyone opened their mouth. Yeah. Mm, mm. Mm. I can also imagine some guy being like, whoa, there, easy, Tiger, just before he got his teeth knocked out. And him being like, <laughs> <laughs> Tiger. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so he was also a, a wharfie, which is like, you know, a dock worker, and uh, he was a member of the Waterside Workers Federation, and um, that was kind of where she began her political activism. She was involved in a lot of um, organizations, but uh, yeah, the Wharfies Union is where she got started. This is from an, uh, a really good article that I uh, got a lot from, from a woman named Sue Taffy, who said... Gladys O'Shane's early political experiences were as a wharfie's wife. Her daughter, Pat, recalls the effect that the 1954 National Waterside Strike in response to proposed changes to the Stevedoring Act had on her mother. The federal government attempted to weaken the WWF's hard-won control... That's the union. Hard-won control over hiring practices. As a member of the WWF Cairns Women's Committee, Gladys supported the striking men by gathering and distributing food to the hungry families. Wharfie's families, like many Aboriginal families she knew, were poor and depended on the support and camaraderie of the group when times were tough. Mm. And she did, yeah, a bunch of stuff, but everything that she did in her entire life was dedicated to fighting for Aboriginal people against the Australian state. And she was mostly active in the 50s and 60s. And a lot of the information I got was from that article from Sue Taffy, but a lot of it was also from the ASIO file on her, uh, which has been almost entirely, but not quite entirely declassified. Like most of it's uh, declassified. There's a few like our source blanked out name said that he'd had mm. a cup of tea with her and she said, blah, blah, blah. But then there's one page that's like confidential, everything blacked out except the name Gladys Dorothy O'Shane, everything <laughs> else blacked out. It's like, why include that? In well, the- they have to put it in the world. Well, I get they have to. Because yeah, it's yeah, her true. Name. That's how you know you're doing well. You've got an easy yeah, file. It is a thick file as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, and, and that was Mainly because she was a member of the CPA, the Communist Party of Australia. So, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, there's just, like, page after page after page of her agitating and organising and radicalising her union to care, and the union movement more generally, to care about Aboriginal people more, raising money, uh, making speeches, and just generally getting a bunch of shit done. Um, Fuck yeah. But also in the ASIO file, it was extremely depressing because it would be, like, she attended a meeting in which she said, we should also consider Aboriginal people. And that that's like the only note in her file. And then, and here's the license plate of every car that was on the street that night. And it's just, <laughs> that happens hell. like maybe like 20 times in this 80 page file. It's just like Far out. creepy fucking racist spy shit. <sighs> um, Gross. She was not a confident speaker uh, and she was quite shy. But because of uh, a bill called the Queensland Aboriginals Prote- uh, Preservation and Protection Act, she thought it was so absolutely horrendous that she made a speech at the Wharfies Women Committee uh, to hundreds of women. And I couldn't find a full text of this, but one of the things that she said was that we are fighting for the rights to become self-supporting, self-respecting citizens with full citizenship rights. The Queensland Act made the Director of Native Affairs the legal guardian of every Aboriginal child in the state. Under this act, people could be forced to leave their homes and private property could be seized. And Gladys said, the Aboriginals' uh, fight for recognition cannot be divorced from the white people's own struggle. She also said, the whole basis of this is economics. The government must have a slave labor pool, an unemployed pool. Without it, squatocracy could not survive. Stirring up prejudices between the coloured people and the whites, they cause divisions among the workers, thereby trying to break down hard-won conditions and preventing them from uh, going on to better things. 
fuck, she was on it. Yeah, and this she was, was like she was very on it. This was when she wasn't a confident speech speaker. This was her like first time speaking in public, basically. Yeah, um, and uh, she actually got a bunch of training from the Communist Party, which she wasn't a member of yet, um, to do public speaking, basically, because yeah, it was something she was pretty terrified of. Um, but mm. she did anyway because it was like less terrifying than leaving this fucking bill unchallenged yeah yeah for real um so in 1960 she formed the cairns aboriginal and torres strait islander advancement league the abbreviation for that is Catsial, which i kept accidentally writing Catsail, which is a cute word but uh yeah Catsial. Uh, and this is from that article by taffy again quote so-called aboriginal uh, aborigines advancement leagues with predominantly anglo-australian memberships had formed in all mainland states in Cairns, however, Aboriginal and Islander members were the, in the majority and held all the main executive positions. They were actively supported by the non-Indigenous members who were also trade unionists and members of the Communist Party of Australia. And that leadership being all Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander was basically because of her and uh, her sort of colleague, her co-founder, and she was the first mm-hmm. president of uh, Katziel. Super cool. Uh, yeah, so under her leadership, Katziel did a bunch of grassroots work, and one of the things that seemed to be like a bread and butter issue was Aboriginal people getting assaulted and seeking justice for them, which like ancient mm. changed. Yeah. Um, and so one that was like uh, pretty famous that she got a lot of coverage for was that she uh, got up an inquiry, set inquiry into two cops who assaulted an Aboriginal girl, and one into a priest who quote flogged two young Aboriginal men. Um, and there was a, uh, I've got this quote here that, um, there's a small description of like racist violence and misogynist violence. So if you want to skip, uh, maybe 20 seconds or something. Yeah. So the young man had been seen by a missionary at the local Ho- Hopevale mission football game, sitting with his girlfriend, unmarried couple socializing was against the rules in this segregated Lutheran mission. So the couple's punishment was two weeks work, including Saturdays with no pay. In protest, they ran away from the mission together, returning a few days later to face their punishments. The young woman was caned and had her hair roughly cut off in front of the other girls and young women as a warning to them. The pastor flogged Jacko, it was with the man, who was then uh, forcibly transported to Palm Island government settlement as further punishment. When Jacko was in Cairns, I know, it just keeps fucking going. When Jacko was in Cairns, however, he gave his police minders the slip and told his tale to Joe Guevara, who was a member of the uh, Ketziel. This case was the first organized campaign by the Cairns League and, it, and saw it working closely and effectively with left-wing unions. Gladys O'Shane reported the events at Hopevale on the 19th, at the 19th Congress of the CPA, the Communist Party of Australia, and foreshadowed plans by several members of the party to force a public inquiry. Cairns League members and Warfies provided sanctuary for Jacko. This decision was not taken lightly as under the act, harboring an Aboriginal was a criminal action. And so this is just a great example of how she personally radicalized her union and the communist party and anyone else who she came into contact with to turn their attention to the inequities and the injustice being faced by aboriginal people and Mm. yeah uh, as i mentioned one of the things that cpa did for her was public speaking classes but yeah i think that's super cool that like she helped helped harbor this uh like political prisoner by moving through the the communist and labor movement super cool yeah um, and, uh, I want to finish off with, uh, a letter that she wrote, cause I feel like it does more to tell you what she was like than anything that I could just tell you about her life or whatever. Uh, it is a bit long. Um, but before I get there, I just want to talk about one of her other legacies, which is her daughter, a woman named Pat O'Shane, um, who was the first, like, fucking everything. She was the first female Aboriginal teacher in Queensland. She was the first Aboriginal person to earn a law degree. She was the first Aboriginal barrister, the first Aboriginal magistrate, and the first woman and Aboriginal person to be the head of a government department in Australia, which was the New South Wales Ministry of Aboriginal Affairs. And um, a lot of that was because of her mum, Gladys, who was extremely engaged. And there's a lot of stuff about how she would spend a lot of time teaching her children. She taught them to read. She would read the newspaper to them and discuss politics. Um, And one thing that she and Pat really bonded over and shared was Charles Dickens. And they would um, just read them to each other and talk about them for hours and hours and hours, which is adorable. I actually 
find Charles Dickens insufferable, but it's um, extremely sweet. And glad that they enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, like we could do a whole episode on Pat, but um, Zach, you have a little story about Pat O'Shane. Yeah, in, I and I think that it kind of ties in with Vita as well. Like mm. clearly, uh, you know, Pat O'Shane and Vita Goldstein have extremely little in common but what they did have were politically engaged feminist mums and who were clearly Mm. instrumental in their own political development it just clearly can't be overstated how important it can be to have a uh, a feminist mum so yeah and speaking of my own feminist mum she was arrested and went to court in the 90s for doing like an art activism <laughs> with some friends from art school where she defaced uh, a billboard advertisement for burly underwear. Um, and Pat O'Shane was the magistrate who heard the case and was like, clearly the people who are fucked are the advertisers. This is an extremely misogynist advertisement, which uses violence against women to sell sexualized underwear. Uh, you guys can go. That's um, and great. it was a bit of a news story at the time. Yeah. So, you know, cool. Pat O'Shane was a badass who, uh, uh, also touched my mum's life. So there you go. Hmm. Shout outs also to my shouts to mom. feminist mums. Yeah. 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 Um, Yeah, so I want to finish off by reading this letter that she wrote, or letter-slash-article, and she originally sent it to a member for the Council for Aboriginal Rights, who I'm pretty sure was a white person, um, who was really impressed with it, and then sent it on to the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, And this was not uh, published... uh, It it was published in the Sydney Morning Herald, but um, it was published somewhere else. I I couldn't tell where, uh, but I think it was a Labour Movement uh, magazine, in fact. Um, Mm -hmm. And in that magazine, it had this little preface before the article. So it says... The editor of the Sydney Morning Herald claimed a, quote, soft spot for the Aborigines, but he doubted Mrs. O'Shane was capable of writing the article. Mrs. O'Shane indignantly assured Mr. Bingham her intellect was quite able to reason such thoughts. It is difficult to believe not only that she wrote it, but that these highly reasoned thoughts came from her mind and not from that of some collaborator. After all, she left school at 12 and apparently has her time fully occupied rearing a considerable family, wrote Mr. Colin Bingham, editor of the Sydney Morning Herald. It's just fucking disgusting. (laughs) And like gets so much worse as it goes on. You know me. I love the natives. (laughs) But but there's no there's way no that way. they could string a couple of words together. Yeah, you know, especially because especially a mum. <sighs> Boo! And also, like, Boo. once you read this, hear this article, it's just like it's so so fucking disgusting. What a piece of shit! Fuck you, Bingham. <laughs> what a I'm, fuck sure, with. I'm sure you're dead by now. Bingham um, cancelled. <laughs> okay, so the letter goes like this. My skin is brown and smooth textured. My hair is black and curly and I have dark brown eyes. I'm tall for a woman, 5 foot 7 inches, built in proportion. People have said to me, as uh, I walk as though I own the place. Can it be wondered at? My ancestors were the first people of this land, the Australian Aborigine. So I never oh, cease to be yeah. amused when people say to me what one chap said to me the other night. Introduced to him at a lodge function, he said, Excuse me, I hope you won't mind me being personal, but you have some interesting blood in you. Uh, what I mean is, well, I mean... What extraction are you? He was greatly interested, leaning towards me, eagerly questioning. When I told him I was of Aboriginal extraction, you could see the recoil, the withdrawal. Another time, another chap, one who sniped with all types of people, black and white, told me I never need admit that I was of Aboriginal extraction. I could quite easily pass for Polynesian or any one of the island's people. I told him right there and then that I had no desire to pass myself off as anything that I wasn't, and that I was proud to be Aborigine. He was taken back, uh, saying, Oh, well, if you're proud, that's a different thing. Good luck to you. More power to you. Why do people say these things? Are they short-sighted? Do they see the Aborigine only as they are today, demoralized and detribalized, living in a vacuum, not having any of their tribal lands, tribal culture, tribal laws, and not being able to live as equals in the white community? They weren't always like this. Before the coming of the white man to Australia, the Aborigines were a proud race with very high moral standards. A very intricate system of tribal laws and taboos prevented intermarrying. They were very hygienic. When European doctors were still ignorant of what hygiene meant in hospitals, 
They're handling cadavers and then going straight to the delivery rooms without washing their hands with the use of antiseptics, hence child mortality was very high. The Aborigine mother delivered her baby on a bed of eucalypt leaves. There were no diseases, no social diseases, not even the common cold. The The Aborigine was a naturalist, botanist, and biologist. Certain material conditions must exist for the advancement of society. Oxen, sheep, horses, none of these things existed in Australia, nor were they easily grown cereals, so the Aborigine remained essentially a nomadic hunter and gatherer. Because they had not developed beyond this, they were wrongly considered a backward people. Uh, More enlightened people today know that there are no backwards people, only people who have had no opportunity. As I've mentioned before, the Aborigines as a race are demoralized and detribalized. Flicked from pillar to post, his tribal lands long ago taken away from him, he has given no opportunity to prove himself. Scientists and anthropologists have provided stacks of evidence to show that given the opportunity, the Aborigine could quite easily take his place in society. Those few young boys and girls who have had the chance to obtain the necessary education and become teachers, nurses, typists, and stenographers are living proof of the ability of the Aboriginals to adapt themselves. What is going to be the future of the Aborigine depends on what he does today, and it won't be dictated by a lot of stuffed shirts in Parliament. More and more, the Aborigines are becoming aware of the need for struggle around their problems and their rights. The story of the murder, rape, and plundering of the Aborigines is a blot in Australia's history. That blot can only be wiped out when all right-thinking people unite in that struggle for the emancipation of Aborigines. And this is uh, all in capitals. And I am proud to belong to a race of souls who, in spite of everything, can come up fighting. So yeah, that letter just like really fucking touched me when I saw it, and sh- like, and it just makes that comment from Bingham all the more despicable. That it's such a fucking incredible letter. There's so much stuff in it, and like, yeah, so many layers, and so much good like Marxist historical materialism, and uh, so much anger and power yeah i just thought it was beautiful so i wanted to read that whole thing i'm sorry it was a bit long no it was great that line about owning the place whoa yeah that's a fucking that's slam dunk yeah uh that's it that's all that i had um i think that's shane yeah for real definitely seems to be uh i feel much less complicated about calling her a badass historical feminist than i would goldstein yeah um yeah excellent noon thank you for uh your work on that and uh no worries getting us and thanks uh laheki for the suggestion yeah i i really enjoyed doing the research for this um and i did yeah, too finding out about gladys o'shane uh and just yeah everything i read i was like man she's so fucking cool yeah <laughs> yeah no, and I find like researching for Vita Goldstein it was almost the opposite of being like, yeah, "Wow, yeah. what an impressive feminist!" And being like, "Ah, there are so many other historical complicating factors that make this mm. um, difficult to endorse." Yeah, um, but there is so much fascinating history involved, so much, mm. so many tangents and little roads to go down and side stories, and like, I don't know if this would have gotten me a passing grade at like. <laughs> year 11 modern history but um i actually enjoyed doing it unlike year 11 Mm. modern history Mm. assignments so you know take it where you can um but yeah thank you elhaki for sorry go on oh no i was just gonna say um i know uh i was also gonna thank elhaki again but uh, i know i just said that i really enjoyed doing the research but uh we kind of early on when we were doing these bonus episodes we got a lot of really nice feedback saying people enjoyed it when we were just like having a bit of a chat and discussing things. And so uh, if you're a $5 patron, you get to uh, suggest topics for our bonus episodes. And we would love any suggestions, including ones that involve research, but we would like to extra encourage people to give us topics for our bonus episodes that we can just kind of like shoot the shit about. Yeah, if there's something that you kind of are interested in, to hear our opinion on as opposed to like uh, a historical uh, story, for example. Mm. Um, yeah, we'd love to get some more of those because we've done a few sort of research and narrative heavy bonus episodes uh, and we know that people like the sort of looser ones. So uh, 
if you haven't suggested anything for your $5 patron, you, you've never suggested a topic for the bonus episodes in the past, please hop onto the Q&A mailbag channel in Discord and give us some ideas. We have if a couple of people who... If you don't use Discord or don't know how to do that, you can like email us or something instead or hit us up on Facebook. But uh, yeah, we do have a special exactly. Discord for checking um, suggestions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and for everybody, all of our patrons who support us, thank you so much. Thank uh, we you. really appreciate it. And we're actually not ready to talk about it yet, but we're working towards a specific goal, sort of logistically and financially. Uh, and hopefully we'll be able to announce that pretty soon. But with the uh, recent influx of patrons that we've had over the last month, we're, we're closer than ever. So yep. we really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the bonus episode Sorry again about the friendly Geordies thing, um, <laughs> but we're forbidden by the snack pod code to ever discuss him again. So yeah, yeah, that's going to be it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, thanks very much, and uh, we'll we'll catch you on the weekend. All right, fuck cups, crunch, crunch. <laughs>